Hey, this is Nancy Wilson, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Everything Fab Four, a podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band, or popular phenomenon for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact the Beatles have and continue to have more than 50 years later. They are part of our human fabric. They created music that continues to bring people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. This show seeks to draw those stories out in interesting and insightful ways. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. Because when we share the Beatles, that's when me and my son and my daughter are ready to dance, and smile and be together as a family. That's when we're ready to say, you know, forget all the world. We are together in this pure, beautiful space. And we're gonna, as Kurt Vonnegut said, we're gonna enjoy it and love each other no matter what, right now. And love our life right now, no matter what. We blow up a balloon and we keep it in the air and we turn on Here Comes the Sun or whatever be those songs. Today's guest is Sophie B. Hawkins, a Grammy-nominated American singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and painter. Born and raised in New York City, she pursued her studies as a percussionist at the Manhattan School of Music before embarking on a music career. Hawkins exploded into the international consciousness in 1992 with her debut album, Tongues and Tales. A massive critical and commercial success, the LP spawned the hit single, Damn, I Wish I Was Your Lover. Her second album, Whaler, featured additional hit singles in Right Beside You and As I Lay Me Down. Career highlights include her 1992 appearance at the 30th anniversary concert celebration, honoring Bob Dylan's career for which Hawkins performed a cover version of I Want You. As an actress, she has portrayed Janis Joplin in the play Room 105, while also performing as herself on the NBC TV series Community, for which she sang renditions of Damn I Wish I Was Your Lover and As I Lay Me Down. After Sony delayed the release of her third album, Tambor, Hawkins established the independent label Trumpet Swan Productions. Her latest album, Free Myself, features such standout tracks as Love Yourself and Better Off Without You. Hawkins is a tireless supporter of issues related to animal rights and the environment. As a political activist, she is a longtime proponent of LGBT rights. Welcome, Sophie B. Hawkins. So, were you from a musical family? Well, the one musical person in my family was my grandmother, Grandma Hawkins, and she actually went, she went to Smith at a time when women didn't go to college. She's from Vermont, and um, before that, from Scotland. And then she did go to a musical college for a minute, but she didn't pursue it so much. She got married to my grandfather, 
but she always had a piano and she was always trying to get all her grandkids into lessons. However, and I think this helped in the end, our parents didn't want us to be taken to lessons because they thought that um, they thought that that overbearing hand of the grandparents would ruin us. They wanted us to be free because they grew up with the Beatles. They grew up listening to the Beatles and the Stones and the Dylan, and they just thought that we should find our own path and shouldn't be regulated and guided by grown-ups. So they didn't. We didn't go to lessons. So I did have a musical grandmother, but she didn't get to impart her her love of music onto me. Although I did find it eventually, of course. So then. How do, uh, what's the road that takes you from uh, those early days with Grandma Hawkins? Um, and I just flashed on Annie Hall, right? Grammy Hall. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, um, how did you, then how did you go from, you know, the supportive uh, but free uh, Grandma Hawkins to becoming a multi-instrumentalist? Well, I mean, I did get to do one lesson. Grandma got one lesson in there when I was six. And the piano teacher that she took me to said I was really talented. And even though my grandmother never came back to take us to lessons, and even though I didn't get to pursue it then, when I was 14 years old, I said to my aunt, Linda, I'm going to be an African drummer. Do you know any African drum teachers? And she said, yes, I do. I know an African drum teacher. And that in itself is just so weird. Because yes. here we are, two, you know, whiter than white women sitting on the couch in Manhattan. And then and she's saying, yes, she knows an African drum teacher. And she did. So she got me to her friend who was an African drum teacher. And that really did change the course of my life. Also because I wanted it. Like I said, this is what I want. And then when he was, when he gave me my first lesson, I decided to quit basketball and just only do African drums with him. And that led to percussion and drum set. And that led to Manhattan School of Music, which, you know, opened the doors for piano and sight singing and theory and all of it. And so, um, so that, it also my drum teacher, he was a multi-instrumentalist and he would never let me just get away with playing the drums. <laughs> so first of all, Grandma Hawkins has amazing connections. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, and then secondly, so um, what what drew you to have that moment of epiphany where you thought, I want to be an African drummer? Well, I'm, you know, I think it's, I don't know. I would theorize on the most practical level that there was a lot of African drummers in Central Park, and I loved listening to them, and I spent all my time in Central Park as a kid. The other thing is drums are the most, you know, first, they're the first door to opening up storytelling and songwriting is storytelling and I ultimately did always want to be a songwriter because I loved songs I never cared about the singer so much I didn't really you know yeah I was always in love with the song I wanted to be a song so drums seem to be the best way it just is unconscious these things I could make up a reason why I chose African drums but I think it goes back to something so much in the psyche, something unconscious. That's right. And something when you were a kid, you know, we do that when we're, when we're yeah. free, right. And we're, and uh, we allow things to independently come into our, our sort of ecosystems. Um, so you went from the drums. How does, how does the drums then, what were your, your instruments that you picked up after that? 
Well, so this African drum teacher brought over a marimba, and then I learned to play Blue Skies on, by Hoagie Carmichael on the marimba. And then I learned the vibraphone, and I got really into jazz because I love the, the sustain of the vibraphone. You know, I can hold my foot down and just do these beautiful ethereal chords and melodies. So I got into improvising, and then, of course, I would be sitting down at my drum teacher's piano because he lived on 74th Street in the Ansonia. So I would go to his house, and he would allow me, he would encourage me to sit down at the piano. So basically, it was natural. Like the drum, I wasn't actually that good a drummer, to be totally honest with you. I practiced all the time, and I wanted to be more natural than I was, but I was a natural composer type like where I got theory really quickly I got got movement and structure and story really quickly so maybe that that's how it's just wanting to fill it in wanting to play the guitar and the bass to be able to be more a part of the creative process that makes sense because then you can tell more of the story. It's sort of like having more moves as a writer, right? The more instruments you have, the more ability you have to paint a deeper picture. Yes. And I think, yes. And I think one of the great things is opening up the unconscious. And when you pick up an instrument, you don't know how to play, you're more likely to find that amazing melody, that amazing lyric. When you've played an instrument so much, you tend to go back to the same old thing. And, um, so in that sense, like why I picked up the banjo and wrote Lose Your Way on the banjo was because I, I was looking for something new and it and it did happen. It does happen. <laughs> That's cool. Um, and now you mentioned jazz and I remember vividly the first time I heard uh, Damn, I Wish You Was, was My Lover that I could hear a jazz sound in that song when it started taking the airwaves in the early 1990s. I could hear this kind of jazz sound. Can you tell us about, about the jazz part of your background? Yeah. Um, first of all, I'm really complimented that you did hear that because it's true. It's not only in the chords, it's in the melody. It's in the way that the melody keeps changing. It's in the way that there's no chorus the same. There's three choruses in that song and each one is actually different. It's amazing that you picked it up because most people don't. So I like that you did that. So my jazz background, well, you know, I grew up in Manhattan. My father loved jazz. He listened to jazz till four and five in the morning, even on weeknights. He'd sit there with his scotch and his cigarette in the living room. I don't know how he got to work the next morning, but he always did. <laughs> my mother was more like, you know, she, my mother loved Joan Baez. She loved the Stones. She loved, but so the jazz, so it fit in. Like we had the great songwriters of the 60s and 70s. And then we had the great jazz artists from Billie Holiday to Ornette Coleman to, you know, everybody, Elvin Jones, everybody was playing in my house, you know, via the record player. So that was just that. I absorbed it. I wasn't conscious of it. I loved it. I absorbed it. And then when I started going to clubs at 14 years old, which is what we did then, we would go out on school nights and we'd go to like tramps. We'd go to McKell's. We'd go to all the famous jazz clubs. We being me and my drum teacher. And then I absorbed it that way by seeing it, hearing it, and feeling really confident that I understood it. And then again, as I told you, I played the marimba and the vibes, and I was into it. I practiced all the time. And then it got to the point where I was transcribing Elvin Jones. 
because I don't know if you know anything about Elvin Jones, but that's a lot of notes. And um, <laughs> I even transcribed his grunts. I was so into it, like I wanted to understand, and I did the same thing with songwriters. Like I would not only write out the melody and the chords and write out the rhythms, because I felt like that was part of what was making the song a hit. I wanted to know what made this music so beautiful. All those elements. Uh, <laughs> yes. You know, um, I remember it, it, one of the things in addition to um, the jazz elements is that I liked about the song was just that it was different, you know, after the 80s where things were starting to become a little rote and a little robotic. Um, it was just so refreshing, um, which is often how people talk about the Beatles. Now, uh, when did you when did you have your Beatles origin moment? When did they appear in your world? Well, I think the first album that I remember, like sitting in front of the, sitting in the living room in Manhattan with playing the Beatles on the record player and actually reading, looking at all the pictures and reading all the liner notes. I'm trying to remember, but I think that was Revolver. And it, it's not that it was that, it's not that it was that year. It was that that was when probably six years old, I said, oh, this is, Oh, cool. This sounds so good. And you know, when you're a kid, and maybe it's not the same for kids now because of the digital, the way that they receive music. But for me back then, the fact that there was this central place where we heard the music on the record player in the house where everybody played their favorite records at different times, mm -hmm. it was like they were a part of the family. So I felt the Beatles were very close to my family because we love them so much. So that they were sort of in our family. It's really sweet in a way. It was totally child, a child vision of it. So I don't know. What's the one where they're looking down from the apartment building? I, it's blue. Oh, that's, uh, that's actually the uh, EMI office building. That's um, Please Please Me uh, would be the U.S. Uh, sorry, the U.K. version. Um, uh, those I remember, were I for us. Memory, yeah. So you and I are close to the same age and it would have been uh it could have been those greatest hits albums from the 1970s the 1962-66 and 1967-70 the red and blue albums yeah that could be because i do remember very much like the cover of revolver but i remember the looking down that what i just said i remember that really clearly too when i was young looking at that and listening. And again, you know, an apartment building. I grew up in Manhattan. I just related to them. And then knowing that John Lennon, at some point when it came into my consciousness, that he lived right down the street, you know, in the Dakota, that all these things were so close. And so, but basically it was the music. It was the fact that we could sing every part. And that is the thing I like about the Beatles too, by the way. I like that even as a non-musician, you're so you can sing basically every part from the bass, and you can pretend to be Ringo. You can actually hear what he's playing. You can imitate it on the cushions and all that. And when we were kids, we didn't know that we weren't playing along, even though we were playing on tennis rackets and couch cushions. We still thought we were playing along. <laughs> the magic of of our, yeah. of our childhood psyches, right? <laughs> yes, but then then come to think that you know. Who knows? Maybe that it, you know, here I am giving my daughter violin lessons and she'll probably end up rebelling and saying, I hate violin. It's too serious, you know. But the thing is, who knows? Maybe 
that is the best way to teach music or to or to share music. Maybe it is to not put an instrument in someone in someone's face, and maybe it is to let them just enjoy the music and pretend. You know, it's just I think of this now, and it's a thought I've never thought of before. But maybe all that was what gave me the confidence and the lack of tension around music. Oh, so maybe Grandma Hawkins knew what she was doing. Yeah, so maybe the lack of lessons and the, the lack of pressure and the, and the fun of playing along on our own terms without real instruments made us feel a, a part of something that was magical and beautiful. And that's sort of the way I feel on stage. I, every time we get up there, I feel like this is crazy magical and beautiful. And, and I can see it in the people's faces in the audience, too. And there's something that I go, I just can't believe this is my job, to be honest with you. So when, when did you begin, obviously quite young from, from your previous comments, when did you begin thinking, I want to be a songwriter? And, and when did you begin putting that in action? Well, I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a song. And then at some point, I, wanted, I realized I had to be a songwriter. And at some point, the consciousness became, oh, I'm not a song? Oh, <laughs> shoot. Then I better write a song. It was weird that that really birthed in, you know, the feeling is that when you're, before you're a teenager, you're a part of everything. And then when you're a teenager, you're like sort of a part of nothing unless you make it happen, which is so depressing and difficult. So I think maybe my late, very late teens, I realized I wanted to be a songwriter, but I had to, I wanted to keep studying more music. That was when I was studying, trying to get into Manhattan School of Music. And then sometime in the second year of Manhattan School of Music, I started writing lyrics on the wall. I was just frustrated and I didn't want to be a drummer anymore. I wanted to be a songwriter and I didn't know how to go about it. So I just started to do it, you know, like in a weird way, like writing lyrics on the wall. And then I would join bands as a drummer and I would, try to get my songs in the set. It wasn't so easy, really, the transition. It took a lot of like, push on my part. I do love the notion, uh, by the way, of, of being a song before a songwriter, right? Um, yeah. that's, that, that's so magical. Um, when you would think you wanted to be a song, what did you mean? Well, like... When my father would play Positively Horse Street, he'd say, don't you just love that lyric? And I think I love everything about this. I love my father. I love New York. I love the view out the window. I love the songs. And that, it seemed like the song in, had everything that was in it. The song encapsulated the whole moment, which is a lot how people think about songs. Because they hear a song and it brings out a whole moment a whole memory a whole you know a dream and and so that's what i wanted to be that what was happening then and that's the right song held it up within it and it's so fascinating the way you know as we've already discussed songs have elements and they have very particular instruments to play on them vocalists etc lyrics but then there's that whole dimension where a song belongs to somebody in a moment that we're not part of Yes. 
Yeah. I mean, do you ever think about your own songs in that way that folks must have their, their building connective tissue and memories out of, out of the music that you put out there? Yes. Yes. And that's what I meant to Mac when I see it on the, when I'm sitting or standing rather and singing and I see it in people's faces that the song represents something in their life that is like their own and they're allowing me to bring it back and they're sharing it with me in that moment. It's kind of powerful. And, you know, it's also why I can't stand when people ask me what my songs are about or they label my songs or label me because there is a point even in me where it's a connective tissue to something bigger and something more profound than I can express. And it doesn't go back to, I wrote this about so-and-so or it's a something song and it's a something song. We don't know how we get to do what we do. Artists are people basically, I think, who are able to stop thinking about it long enough to let the creations out. We all have the potential to do it, but people don't let themselves or they don't want to, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but for me, that thing that happens for other people with the song also happens with me. And it's not related to a person, place, or thing. It's related to something bigger than that. That may include a person, place, or thing at one point, but that's just a trigger point. The rest is bigger. We'll be back with more from Sophie B. Hawkins after these messages. You're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. I'd like to share uh, what I think is one of the most profound statements ever made about the Beatles, and I'm proud to note that you, Sophie B. Hawkins, made it. So without further ado, I'd like to read it for our listeners and then get your comments about really this very insightful uh, collection of thoughts. You said the Beatles defined their own sense of value and honor. They took stances without ever being politically correct, and they did it all with incredible incredible humor. I honestly think that there are certain things in life that help people understand themselves. I think the Beatles are one of those things. They resonate the journey of true selfhood, really. Okay, I said that? You did. It's amazing. Did I say it like in a moment or did I did I write it down? I believe you wrote it down and it is beautiful. And it's uh, it's right up there for me with... Um, the the really remarkable and insightful quote from Kurt Vonnegut about the how the Beatles made him enjoy life more. God, that's that. Well, see, Kurt Vonnegut said it better in a way because that is everything I'm trying to say, but he said it simpler. Oh <laughs> no, no. See, I I'm going to argue with you. I think Hawkins takes out Vonnegut here. Um, uh, I, there are certain things in life that help people understand themselves. I think the Beatles are one of those things. They resonate the journey of true selfhood, really. That's you. I love that. And I wonder if you could tell us more about um, what makes you feel that way about them and, and why they are different, which I guess is why people are still listening to them 60 years later. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I can better what you read back to me. I don't know if I can say anything better. But the thing that when you're telling me that, it makes me cry because it oh, it just makes me feel like it to expand upon it, like literally expand. Like Einstein said, expanding your circle of compassion. 
the fact that you can do that in a group of people also, like I said, the Beatles were a part of my family. The fact that my family got to experience it, all those individual things together is also an amazing thing. And I think the Beatles as individuals got to do it together. Where wow, humans rarely do this. Where together they were so huge, and they were able to sustain that. It like held them until it didn't. I guess the time was up for that. But the thing is that we all got to expand in that same way. This togetherness um, around them. I have never had that with another artist. And you know, when I hear like Bowie, and my son loves Bowie, and I loved Bowie later on in life, I got a little older, and then I wanted to listen to David Bowie and everything. And I see, but you know, we can't share it in the same way we share the Beatles. Because when we hear the Beatles, that's when me and my son and my daughter are ready to dance and smile and be together as a family. That's when we're ready to say, you know, forget all the world. We are together in this most pure, beautiful space. And we're going to, as Kurt Vonnegut said, we're going to enjoy it and love each other no matter what right now and love our life right now, no matter what. We blow up a balloon and we keep it in the air and we turn on Here Comes the Sun or whatever Beatles song. We can't do that with Bowie. You know what I mean? There's a real difference. We can't even do that really with the Stones. But you can do it always with the Beatles always with anyone isn't that shocking it's beautiful and it it's true right because in a way bowie demands to be listened to differently um and of course their journey is is remarkable in so many ways one that they stayed together as long as they could uh but but secondly of course because they change so much you know they start off with those very simple um show tune like songs like she loves you and i want to hold your hand and they're ending up with yeah. the abbey road medley you know that's a that's a journey it is and when i think of i want to hold your hand and i think about it often because it, to me that defines when you want to marry somebody when i think about how simple i want to hold your hand is but it's taken me almost 60 years to understand that that actually is the essence of wanting to really be with somebody in this eternal way it is about wanting to hold their hand because I don't know if you feel this way, but for me, if I want to hold someone's hand, that is the most intimate thing I could possibly do. Because of personal space and connection and those sorts of things? It's like, it'll re- well, for me, it reassures me that this person and I have each other's back and that we are, it's the, it's the nobility of holding someone's hand. It's, it's, it's so strong. When you hold someone's hand, you're saying, I've got you and I'm here for you no matter what. And that has happened to me twice besides my children or maybe even once with a human being. And, you know, of course it would be, it's my sort of task. Not that I'm testing people, but if I want to hold someone's hand, that is, and then, then holding their hand is the thing that feels so good. Then I say, just go with it. Trust your gut because the hand and the heart are it. That's powerful. And it, it, it's, I, I love the idea that the person whose hand you're holding, they, you know, they're in your corner, right? That's the person that, yeah. that you trust the most. That's powerful. Um, did, did the Beatles 
did they inform your songwriting in any way in terms of of how you go about it? I mean, I, I confess to hearing jazz earlier, um, and that may be one of the areas where the Beatles um, have less less truck, as it were. Where did they did they impact your songwriting? Yeah, they did, but I can't say exactly how. But just in wanting to be the best, like never settling, never settling. I know when one of my songs is mediocre, and I won't I won't allow myself to stop working on it until I feel it has that mystery, that magic, like that has like something. I always say something because I'm not sure what something is about the song. I'm not sure what it's really about, but I have this, there's a sense of magic to it. And then for me, until I hit that point of magic with a song, I don't want to let it go. And I don't always hit it, but I try. And so when I put a song on an album, it has to have lived with me for a while and it has to have some sense of magical, (laughs) magic and mystery. And, um, and often the humor. The thing about the Beatles also that has informed my songwriting is their humor and their lyrics and the way you just laugh out loud when you listen to them. And that people don't laugh enough at my songs, which makes me feel like I haven't really achieved it. Because when I listen to my songs, sometimes I laugh out loud. Maybe people do and I don't know it. But, <laughs> but that is a really great song when you can actually be moved and laugh at the funniness of a lyric, the turn of a phrase. That's amazing. Feeling two foot small or whatever. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, and, and baby, you can drive my car. It, that's the, the lyrics are just, everything is, they're just so often so funny. Baby, you're and a rich then, man. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Oh man. And they're funny for different pe- to different people for different reasons. So yes, we have to know that they've influenced me because I grew up on them as if they were the food I was eating, you know? <laughs> so it's in the air. Um, yeah. I wonder if you could, uh, I, 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 full confession, I've done my research and I, I read about uh, your composition of, of this well-known song, but I wonder if you could share with our listeners how you wrote uh, Damn, I Wish you, I Was Your Lover, because it, it wasn't, it, it's an interesting story about creativity and, and the magic of it. You mean like the, like the mistake of it? <laughs> sure. Yeah, well, it was, it was, um, you know, I'll often be at the piano or the uh, whatever instrument, and then it will be late and I'll be tired. And I realize that until I get to the point of tiredness, I won't find that magical simplicity of a lyric or a, or a chord, something. And my hands were going back, you know, from, from the A to the D chord, and it was beautiful. But then I was so tired that my hand slipped to the G. So it was, it was it was D to A over G and suddenly that was the sound, the jazz sound that you said, but it was, it opened up my heart and it opened up the lyrics. So it was a mistake of my hand and that it was a big sound and it is a big sound. Every time that song is played and you hear those opening chords, you go, that's big. And that was a big fucking accident. I'm sorry. I crossed. That was a big freaking accident. And, but the bigness of it made me say, here it comes. I know it's coming. Oh my God. What am I going to do? I just have to sit here and let it come out. And, <laughs> and, and it did. And it was big. That's beautiful. And, and I had to follow it. Yeah. 
<laughs> that uh, reminds me of the beautiful origin story. Uh, I guess it was in Jane Asher's basement or somewhere where John and Paul were on the piano and they were playing, I want to hold your hand. And they looked at each other because it suddenly felt big. It was bigger than they were in the room, right? Yes, that is. That is it. Yes. Yes. I, one of the things oh, I, I enjoyed about experiencing your career was, um, you know, I, I adored that song and, and, and purchased the first album, you know, good fan that I was. And then you came back uh, with what felt like a very different kind of song. And, you know, again, after the eighties, which felt so rote to me, it was nice to see someone who wasn't doing the same trick over and over again. Right. I mean, like I love the band, the cars, but they didn't really, at a certain point, they didn't move outside of their range very much. Right. Um, yeah. And I and I remember hearing as I lay me down and thought, wow, she is this is completely different. <laughs> um, you know, it felt more like a, a lullaby, a lullaby that I just had to have. But it felt um, it just felt different. I mean, how did how did that song come about? Well, you know, that's another, another way that Beatles must have influenced me subconsciously because they had such a range. So I guess I expected it of myself you know, growing up, then that I would have to have that kind of range and push myself. Well, yeah, you know, As I Lay Me Down came out, you know, Dan was very pure. It came out in this very pure way. I didn't want to sound like anything. I wasn't looking particularly to imitate anything. I really wanted to express these feelings that Dan expresses. And when the music came and it was became the vehicle, I followed it. And I told you it was somewhat terrifying because it was so big and so truthful. And boy, did I keep going with the truth in that song. It's just like one verse after another gets more and more revealing in a way. Mm -hmm. So with As I, that was something where, again, I was tired. I was a waitress. It wasn't that long after Dam. And, um, but all of these were before I was signed. And then I was sit I remember leaning against a bedpost, sit sitting on a floor, leaning against a bedpost, after I had been waiting tables all night and the, on the, this guitar, my classical first guitar, and it didn't come out like it wasn't, it, it was more like a classical thing. It sounded like it, like the As I Lay Me Down chorus came out. It started to come out almost like I was being let, very different than Dan. It was almost as though it were written in my mind and was now coming out. Like all I had to do was just let it come out. And it went right to that verse. And it, boy, when I, the bridge, are you kidding me? That bridge, people still say, every musician when they play that bridge says, I cannot believe this bridge. And I think to myself, I can't believe it either, but it happened. I was there. It just was, I was almost led. And probably what happened is that I had been playing the guitar for so many weeks, going through so many different variations that it just came together, like the puzzle came together. But in the moment, it felt like it was just coming out, you know? That's and beautiful. that was really a clear emotion, too. I had the clear, I had the clear emotion, very different than Dan, about a very different part of my life. But the very clear emotion was there, and the very clear emotion is in the song. Clearly. I mean, that is so pure. Well, so flash forward then, and... Um... You have a new album. I wonder if you could tell me about the making of the, of that new record and um, and the experiences with going back into the studio. Well, 
the new album, I, re- I really love the new album. And I have to say, I didn't always love it. But again, I sit with my songs a really long time before I let them out or let people hear them because I want to make sure that I, I just want to see how they age a little bit, you know, within my consciousness. So I did sit with those songs a while and, um, and then they kept, you know, more kept coming. But some of them I didn't let out for a really long time. And then when I got into the studio with Ken Rich in Brooklyn, I had a lot of songs, you know, that I said, look, here's 50 songs. Let's just choose the 12 best or whatever. So it was a process of really, and then going back and forth. But what was fun about it was I always have my demos and my demos are really clear, pure versions of the song, you know, and sometimes I'll do two or three demos, different keys, different arrangements, whatever, because I want to see if the song is any good. So I sat there with Ken and we were like, well, for instance, the song See Myself, just as an example, was very musical. I had, it was like strings. My demo had strings and timpani, and it was just so musical. It was in a much higher key, and it sounded like it was written for literally a musical. And he said, you know, I just wonder what it would be like if we just, the same exact song, but maybe tried it on like a more flamenco guitar. And so it was that kind of thing. Like, let's just, See what we can, and it didn't happen with every song, but that, and I happen to love the way Free Myself came out. Now I did mourn the old version, and I still have the old demo because it was so dramatic. Free Myself it was just so, so dramatic, the demo. But the album version is very simple and sweet, and it goes the same places musically, but it's so much more under, it's so understated. So, anyways, that's the kind of thing that happened with this album. So then what do you do when you know that this other version of, of this song that you're happy with, of course, um, yes. but this other version of this song exists? Um, I mean, does it ever see the light of day? What happens? Or is it just part of the, the archival history of, of that particular? Well, I always hope that I will have a chance to put out my demos know as um sort of a work of art because i do think you know like i have the 20 demos of damn which i was your lover and the very first one is really beautiful but in a way people have to really i wouldn't it's like it has to be a thing because demos are very sacred you know they're they're they're, they're it's like letting it's like Yes, I would love to put them out, but I don't want to put them out and expect it's, it's not like marketing an album. It would be like, I guess, a coffee table book of someone's work after a long period of time where they really have arrived. Like when you see Annie Leibovitz's coffee table books, it's because you really, she's gotten there. She's gotten there in her career. And I think with my demos, they're so, so deep to me and they're so precious that I would ha- like to have gotten there. And then people listen to them like, this is special. This is a gift for you, a personal thing, you know? And then people who get it will really get it. And a lot of people will go, I don't really get that. It's too simple or that's too sparse or that's just strange. There are there's strange animals demos, you know? I like that. Not everyone understands them. I've been listening to uh, lately the the demos of the band Badfinger. Remember those guys from the early 70s? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, they're really 
you know, despite in in addition to knowing how the tragedy of that band, but they're they're really haunting. They're just different stories, you know, before they put yeah. on their power pop guitars and completely change them. They're these little haunting stories. And it it does, you know, it it is a very different experience. Like you said, they are kind of a gift, aren't they? They are. And you know, the few people who, who hear my demos, they say that. They say it's like a Christmas thing and some people aren't really equipped to hear them they don't have they can't un they can't strip down and just hear something for what it is the same way they can't see the brilliance in a child's artwork you know they think well his you know that child hasn't studied that you know they don't get it and i get it so i'm gonna say you're not gonna judge my child's artwork and you're not gonna judge my demos because I treasure them so much. Like I said, they're like creatures from another place. And it's, it's so sweet. And you know what's really interesting too? It's like with my paintings for me, I don't market them. I'm not marketing my demos. I'm actually marketing an album. And there's a process when you're going to market yourself. The process, it starts like, it starts and then you have a beginning and a middle and an end. And you know when you're ready to market something. And you talked about free myself. Do you know that this album was was ready before the pandemic, but no one in the business thought it was ready. And it's the exact same album. And then one person at the end of the pandemic said, well, what have you really been doing? Why is it taking you so long? And I go, well, I've been doing so much, but nobody likes it. And so he said, let me hear it. And I, I and he goes, What? This is beautiful. Why aren't you letting this out? And I said, well, nobody wants to support it. And I don't want to do crowdfunding because it's too much work for me. I mean, I know I'll never follow through on crowdfunding personally because I don't go online. You know? <laughs> so how am I going to do that? So, so, so it was just like one person. And then, so it's the way people hear things. And maybe that's like, ultimately, it does go back to the Beatles. It's the way you let something in. And we humans have let the Beatles in to the purest part of us. We trust them. We trust them. We don't trust everybody. We don't always want to hear every kind of artist. They're for sometimes, you know. But the Beatles, you know you can trust and you can let them in. Why is that? It's really intimate. That's such a great question. And I, I think about these very things a lot, of course. Um, I teach them every fall here on, on the Jersey shore. And I think about this question a lot because I, I have the privilege of watching students sometimes have their first experiences, right. Where they connect with them. And uh, I, I, you know, I go back to your beautiful quotation from a moment ago. I mean, they, they let us in, they let us into their journey, but they also stimulate our own journey. Right. Yeah. You know, they, they let us know that it's okay to have our hearts broken. And um, I mean, heck that we should want to have our hearts broken, right? <laughs> um, because that's yeah. part of the emotional lived experience. And um, I, I don't know about you, but in some of my darkest times, I've thought, you know what? Uh, this is a really terrible time I'm in right now, but I wouldn't trade the Beatles for any of this. And thank goodness they're here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't they didn't really exploit us as an audience. Yeah, that's and right. We could that's a v 
See, you are loaded with pithy quotes. Um, I don't know how this happens, but it just is like it comes from my unconscious. Yeah, they and they they invite us along for that ride, and they don't exploit us or force us to go on it. Um, but you know, damn, if if not every time I play the White Album, I realize there's a space in there for me, right? Yes, 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 and yes. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related books, including John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life, and a forthcoming biography about beloved Beatles roadie Mal Evans. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a Wonderwall production. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. Everything Fab Four.